You're listening to WKCR 89.9. My name is Josh Kazali, and today I'll be presenting a special feature on John Milton's epic poem, Paradise Lost. It's a titanic work which you're probably familiar with, whether you're aware of it or not, which has launched the story of Adam and Eve into the literary imagination and has become one of the most enduring works of literature in the English language. I've been taking a class here uh, at Columbia called Milton Colonization Revolution, which is taught by Professor Julie Crawford in the English department. And for my final project in the class, I invite you to join me on a journey through epic poetry as I explore what I found to be one of the most exciting parts of the poem that isn't often examined, the air. Now, one of the greatest experiences of reading Milton is his ability to put across this sense of materialism where his ability to describe everything is just so profoundly vivid. All the descriptions are just fabulous um, in all of his poetry. Um, To those of you who've read it, you know what I'm talking about. So throughout Paradise Lost, he frequently turns this view to the air itself. So in this show, I'm going to be examining over the airwaves, especially those of you who are listening on FM radio, the way that air itself has made the center of Milton's poetic attention. And it takes a lot of different forms from, from atmosphere to, to the, the more kind of fluid uh, space in, in, in the whole kind of universe that Milton constructs, as well as things like smoke and mist. Um, so if you've never read the poem before, I hope you'll stay tuned and enjoy the passages I'll read which will surely be exciting even if um, they're removed from context or you're not so familiar with, with John Milton, the poet. Um, and if you're a longtime Milton fan, I, I'm hopeful that there will still be something new for you in the show, um, so I hope you'll stay tuned as well. Um, and as usual with Paradise Lost, it'll be a lot of, of Christian subjects and themes, but I'll be approaching those in a secular fashion as kind of poetic constructs. Um, now, Milton wrote about an intellectual relationship between heads, which is people reading, and pens, people writing. Um, though I'm not acting as a pen as such, I hope any heads listening will still enjoy the show and and take something from what I'm about to say. So, um, of course, big thanks to Professor Crawford for all of her help throughout the semester and kind of guiding us and the rest of the class through um, what is a, a pretty, pretty dense and intense read. And, of course, thank you to WKCR for giving me a platform to, to do this presentation, um, and I hope you'll enjoy. So without any further ado, let's get into it. This will be uh, The Airwaves of Paradise Lost, a WKCR arts feature. So the first chapter of this um, sort of special feature is about Milton and, and monism. Um, so to understand air in Paradise Lost, it's worth taking a moment to, uh, to unpack the complex kind of cosmological construction of the poem. Um, even though Paradise Lost is Milton's merging of classical and Christian traditions in the epic poetic genre, Milton doesn't subscribe to all the tenets of Christianity. Uh, Milton was a prolific pamphleteer throughout the English Reformation and readily criticized the clergy in both his poetry in something like the, the elegy Lycidas, um, where he criticizes the Anglican movement towards Catholic hierarchy and likens them to, quote, a grim wolf with privy paw, um, as well as in his political pamphlets, um, as in his writing on the freedom of speech in Areopagitica, he was definitely not um, a, an easygoing uh, religious man. He was he was definitely ready to criticize where he saw it. Now, in Paradise Lost, Milton 
departs from a t- kind of tidy Christian cosmology in his evocation of a monist philosophy. So monism is a theology of oneness or unity, where everything is derived from a singular primary material. Uh, in book f- five of Paradise Lost, uh, the angel Raphael um, in his kind of like prolonged conversation with Adam um, calls this, quote, one first matter all. This is a departure from, from traditional Trinitarian Christianity in which God kind of acts as an entity independent from the universe, creating the world out of nothing, um, is kind of discreet from, from all the other stuff in the universe. In Milton's monist c- cosmology, the universe is made out of this primordial vital substance from the realm of chaos. Um, this is what Raphael says to Adam in Book 5. All things proceed and up to him return, if not depraved from good, created all, such to a perfection, one first matter all, endued with various forms, various degrees of substance, and in things that live of life, but more refined, more spiritous, and pure, and near to him placed, or near tending, each in their several active spheres assigned, till body up to spirit work in bounds, proportioned to each kind. That's from Book 5. Um, now, already you can see the fluidity with which uh, Milton's monisms creates this relationship with essence, air, and ephemeral matter. The word he uses here, spiritus, is relating to some sense of essential matter. We'll see this is indicative of metaphysical poetry in the Renaissance, poets like John Donne. Um, but it also notably meant uh, open to the free circulation of air in the 17th century, according to the Oxford English Dictionary. So Milton here is really kind of changing the game of a kind of universal structure, um, which is really kind of a compelling way to look at the rest of the poem. And especially when you're, you're kind of dealing with this kind of, kind of heavy retelling of, of Christian stories, um, it's interesting to see the ways that he's kind of really doing something new with the way that he's conceiving of this really fluid um, continuum of, of, of life. Even the body and soul divide is, as Raphael puts it later, quote, differing but in degree of kind the same. So this sense of continuity is really crucial to understanding Milton's philosophy and his perception of divinity, where everything is in some way connected. You listening to me and me speaking to you and the space between us. Animals, plants, earth, and the sky, it's all derived, derived from this one first matter. In this sense, air becomes a compelling image of divinity, something that fills space, connects. It becomes a part of Milton's sense of vitalism, something that's this uh, essential matter which composes life itself. So as I'm going through these kind of other forms that air is going to take and the many kind of uh, ways in which air is manifested in Paradise Lost, I think it's it's really important to keep this sense of monism and of vitalism um, in the back of your mind, um, where the, w- the forms that air takes um, and the different forms that matter takes even are all kind of existing on this continuum of being that is really the the core of Milton's uh, cosmology in Paradise Lost. So next we're going to talk about the way that Milton's conception of God relates to the air in a chapter that I'm calling Empyrean Atmosphere. Um, Now it's a good reminder to just keep in mind that what we're talking about is Milton's conception of God um, as, as much as it is also Milton's conception of Satan, of Adam and Eve, you know, it's all within the 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 structure of his epic poem. So maybe what I'm about to say about Milton's God doesn't relate to what you think about God, and that's okay. Um, you know, I just want to put across the kind of specific view that I am reading in 
Paradise Lost. Um, so we've talked about this sense of unity, um, which Milton puts across in the air surrounding God in what Milton calls, quote, the pure Empyrean where he sits. That's from book three. The word Empyrean is really key for the sense of heavenly air. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, as a noun here, Empyrean means the highest or most exalted part or sphere of heaven, suggesting the, the actual realm of heaven. But it also means, more generally, the visible heavens, the firmament, the sky, also from Oxford's. Um, so heaven isn't just in the air. Mater- materially, it is the air. And this is the character of the alignment between God and air, where God is deployed in a way that might be understood as fluid and spiritus, where he is kind of um, both in the air, in heaven, up in the sky, but also kind of more more in a different way, a part of the air, a part of, of fluid matter. Um, and we can see this in Raphael's description of the creation of the earth, which is really key to my reading of Divine Air in Paradise Lost. Adam asks Raphael for a retelling of God's creation from the depths of chaos. He asks, so this is Adam um, from book seven, quote, how first began this heaven which we behold distant so high with moving fires adorned, innumerable, and this which yields or fills all space, the ambient air wide interfused, embracing round this florid earth, what cause moved the creator in his holy rest through all eternity so late to build in chaos. So I I really like this passage, um, especially this idea that the air yields or fills this ambiguity reveals the versatile way in which air is manifested in Paradise Lost. The air yields to agents who move through it, but it also fills space. Air isn't like an empty space. And of course, Adam notes that this is, that it is all around us. Um, The air is situated in it and immersed in it, um, while still being in some way a part of it. The word interfused has this kind of suggestion that the the earth is kind of immersed and in this fluid um, kind of, airy waters that surround us in, on the earth. Um, and so this is what Adam kind of poetically puts across his desire, basically just to know, like, how how did the earth, how, how did we get here, <laughs> essentially? And so Raphael reluctantly tells Adam a bit more of Milton's creation narrative, which reflects the same idea with a little bit more divine authority. So this is Milton's imperial divinity in action. So Raphael quotes God um, saying, so this is God speaking um, in book seven, and thou my word begotten son by thee, this I perform, speak thou and be it done. My overshadowing spirit and might with thee, I send along, ride forth and bid the deep within appointed bounds be heaven and earth, boundless the deep because I am who fill infinitude nor vacuous the space. Once again, from book seven, Um, This sense of creation is in keeping with Milton's monism, where there is a continuity to the way that God conceives of space. The space, as God says, is not vacuous. Air is not empty, but fills space. It has a material property that exists in the continuum of one first matter all. This is absolutely essential to Milton's cosmology, uh, because there's this vitalist sense of unity in the air, which God evokes. Um... And he's, he's using a lot of language there, uh, like the, the idea of the spirit, um, speaking a little bit to that sense of Trinitarian Christianity. But their kind of spirit can also kind of suggest something more spiritist that we talked about earlier, some kind of fluid essence. Um, yeah, so I think that's a really powerful 
passage. And I love that idea of kind of filling, filling infinitude and uh, non-vacuous space. It's also worth knowing just the kind of poetic um, kind of formulations of that passage. I mean, it's so complex and that he's got so much control over the lines um just in that like first passage this i perform speak thou and be it done there's so much kind of rhythmic um really just beauty i think in in especially in someone like god who has this kind of um authoritative voice so as always you know i'm talking about the air but i think it's it's always amazing to remember remember um just how kind of in control of his craft milton is Another effect of Milton's airborne poetics is this sense of fluidity, returning to the idea put across by Raphael when he says, till body up to spirit work, and differences of degrees. Though Milton does have a sense of hierarchy towards divinity, the continuum is continuous. It's more of a slide than a ladder. Divine matter is transubstantial for Milton. Um, you know, it, it, it's not kind of bound by one material meaning. It, it exists in... Uh, uh, a lot of different kind of uh, forms and materials, which he displays most fascinatingly in a passage describing the sexual intercourse of angels, which is, it's such a fascinating passage, um, which Raphael tells Adam, uh, this is from book eight, let it suffice thee that thou knowst us happy and without love no ha happiness. Whatever pure thou art in the body enjoyst and pure thou wert created, we enjoy in eminence an obstacle find none of membrane, join, or limb, exclusive bars, easier than mix air with air. If spirits embrace, total they mix, union of pure with pure, desiring, nor restrained conveyance need, as flesh to mix with flesh, or soul with soul. It's such a complex passage, it's sometimes kind of tricky to figure out what's going on, but I think... Um, I, I really love these kind of parallel constructions of air with air, pure with pure, flesh to mix with flesh, or soul with soul. I mean, you really get this sense of kind of like sameness and like this like complete mixing of things, um, which I think is really, really interesting. And I think we should keep this vision of angelic intercourse in mind because we're going to see what um, post-lapsarian, which means after the fall, uh, human intercourse is like. So um, we do get a little bit of uh, a perspective of what um, the, the the embrace is like between Adam and Eve um, earlier in, in the poem, which is, it's very like lucid. It's very, it seems very simple and kind of, kind of flowery and roses are falling. Um, but we do get a, this really fascinating look at what, um, what post-lapsarian intercourse is like, and it's a lot different. Here, there's a sense of vitalist soul and monist fluidity portrayed through the mixing of air, um, kind of connecting air, you know, the air with air, to this total purity, this divine sanctity of angelic love. This divine sense of fluidity translates into more than just a material sense, as we see in, in this passage, but elsewhere in the book, we learn that Angels are described as having the ability to assume both sexes um, and really any form that they desire. So the form, the material form that something takes um, is not something that a, a divine being is bound to, which I think is such an interesting thing to, to consider when you're thinking about what divine beings looked like to Milton and what 
he conceived of divinity at all. It's it's kind of connecting that to this sense of fluidity and um, the ability to change and to 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 be assuming different forms and materials. So I think it's it's definitely worth considering and it's really interesting. Now, I said that we were going to talk about Renaissance metaphysical poetry, and the description of angelic intercourse certainly evokes that of someone like John Donne. Uh, this description of spirits mixing is totally familiar to, to some, if you're familiar with Donne and other metaphysical poets who wrote extensively about the spirit or the soul in this kind of way. So this is from Donne's The Ecstasy, which is a phenomenal poem if you haven't read it, but he says, quote, on man, heaven's influence works not so, but that it first imprints the air, so soul into the soul may flow, though it to body first repair. For Don, the soul is something that can flow from body to body through the medium of air. Um, Milton evokes the same sense of fluidity, but for him, true divinity goes even further, abolishing the divide from body and soul. When Raphael says, nor restrained conveyance need as flesh to mix with flesh or soul with soul, He's echoing that same principle of the objects of God's creation, differing in degree, but of kind the same. Physical embrace and this airy, atmospheric entanglement between angels are envisioned as one and the same. The nature of divine air, then, is one that spans the continuum of his monist philosophy, something holistic, pure, and continuous, which fills space and makes Milton's cosmos unified and interconnected. This is really the big divine formulation of Milton's poetics, and it's different from some of those other Renaissance poets like Dunn, who are, are really phenomenal to read, but it's he, it's not the same sense of continuity, continuity um, between um, what is a divine substance and what is kind of a corporeal human substance. Um, so it's it's really this fascinating part of what Milton is putting across in the the cosmology of Paradise Lost. So that's Milton's divine, godly, empyrean air. Um, but what about the fallen angel? So that brings us to um, the great antagonist of the poem, or by some readings, its epic hero, um, Milton's Satan, who subverts and transforms his own airy cosmology. Um, so this section I'm calling Stench and Smoke, and we're going to be talking about um, the way that air is manifested in relation to Satan. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to WKCR, where we're talking about um, the air in John Milton's epic poem, Paradise Lost. My name is Josh, and I hope you'll stay tuned and keep listening because this is where it gets super fun and super interesting. In both the Bible and in Paradise Lost, Satan is called the Prince of Air, but his conception of air is really different from the Empyrean air of heaven. This is clear from the very opening of the poem um, with Milton's descriptions of hell, which are fantastic. Quote, no light, but rather darkness visible, um, with ever-burning sulfur unconsumed, and then with stench and smoke, which is where the, the title of this section comes from. So 
The smoky, stinky air of hell is contrasted with the divine air of heaven by Satan himself, rallying his fellow fallen angels, quote, that we must change for heaven this mournful gloom for this celestial light. That's from book one. Um, and gloom, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, is, quote, an indefinite degree of darkness or obscurity, the result of night clouds, deep shadow. Thus, the condition of hell and of Satan is one of obscurity. Clouds are particularly important here as the quality of the fluid atmosphere is made obscured and dim. Unlike God's airy matter, you can't see through it, making this kind of monist motion across the continuum impossible. So I'm arguing that Satan not only takes to the air, but he perverts it, as in complicates, confuses, and darkens the bright air of Milton's monist cosmology. One of the most vivid descriptions of Satan's corrupted air is in the vivid description of his devilish enginery, Satan's attack on heaven. Book six is an incredible, wrenching book of Paradise Lost, where Satan and his army of fallen angels invent gunpowder um, accompanied by smoke and sulfur. And their attack on heaven, the full arsenal of Milton's poetic description, is on full display, particularly in his references to the air. Um, in one quote, um, Then soaring on main wing, tormented all the air. All air seemed then conflicting fire. And then later, But soon obscured with smoke, all heaven appeared, from those deep-throated engines belched, whose roar disemboweled with outrageous noise the air, and all her entrails tore, disgorging foul their devilish glut. It's such a tremendous passage, um, and so horrific. The, the belch of the devilish glut, this is the kind of toxicity which accompanies the air of Satan. Satan clouds, obscures, and in general stinks up the holistic air of Milton's cosmology. He is an agent of obscurity, and by obscurity I mean it as the OED puts it. Uh, dark, dim, or gloomy, dismal, but more specifically, concealed from sight by darkness. Obscurity is both a general characteristic of Satan's darkness, as well as a material property by which Satan infiltrates. The air he inhabits is made murky and foreboding in both substance and character, suggesting a perversion of the air itself. So, obscurity is the name of the game for Satan's manifestation on Earth as well. Let's look at one of my favorite passages in the entire poem in Book 9. So this is when Satan is descending onto earth and taking the form of a serpent, which he will then go on to kind of, you know, cause a whole lot of trouble. <laughs> Subjected to his service angel wings and flaming ministers to watch and tend their earthly charge of these the vigilance I dread and to elude thus wrapped in mist of midnight vapor glide obscure and pry in every bush and brake where hap may find the serpent sleeping in whose mazy folds to hide me in the dark intent I bring. So Milton employs air-based diction to create an atmospheric manifestation of Satan as the angel's watch is predicated on visibility. Um, this Satan must become invisible, traveling in wrapped in mist of midnight vapor and evoking this atmospheric envelope for Satan to glide obscure. The airy cloak recalls the rising mist in which Satan enters the scene of Eden, suggesting his diffuse and opaque presence. The word mist indicates not only an ephemerality, but also this sense of obscurity, which means a diffuse cloud of fine water drop droplets accumulating to, to, to limit visibility. This sense of limited visibility is emphasized by a secondary meaning of mist, taking on a physiological dimness of eyesight, or this just kind of a deterioration of sight, eyesight, 
which definitely takes on a deeper resonance with Milton's own blindness. Um, those definitions are from the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, so this sense of limited mis- visibility also occurs with the midnight vapor, which Satan embodies vapor suggesting matter in the form of a steamy or imperceptible exhalation. Both mist and vapor operate as these instances of fluid atmospheric matter, which conceals Satan from the watchful eyes of the angels and their diffuse ephemerality. The material obscurity becomes even paradoxical as Satan simultaneously exists as an invisible vapor and a concealing mist, both transparent but also opaque. This paradoxical materiality is doubled by the fact that mist can be perceived as either a substance or a medium, compounding this sense of fluidity by existing simultaneously as a discrete object as well as something that can be traveled through. And so by taking up the material properties of air, Milton embraces a fluid Satan who instrumentalizes the air and becomes this dim and airborne presence um, and who's both oppressive and ephemeral. Um, So his infiltration is just so diffuse in Paradise Lost that it becomes kind of confusing and and it's it's hard to put your finger on quite quite where he is so he does still have this kind of transubstantial being that the angels do and that god does but instead of being this uh holistic version of that satan's is really kind of confusing and and actively nefarious there's also something neat going on here with Milton's metrical rhythm, which is all made out of iambic feet and enjambments, um, which um, I don't I don't know how much people listening are are interested in the kind of formal use of of, of iam iams and enjams, um, but they create this this sense of light and lyrical quality because of this um, kind of up down motion. I dread and to elude, thus wrapped in mist of midnight vapor, glide obscure and pry it all glides off the tongue it's um you know a really well-crafted poetic verse where every foot in this passage is written in an iambic meter and it just flows really freely um and it's also you know the enjambments which is it's 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 really visual if you're reading the poem so i definitely encourage you to take a look but the lines kind of bleed into each other until the end of the passage um and the dark intent i bring Finally, that kind of is end stopped at the end with a firm period. But until then, all of the lines bleed into each other and they flow freely into one another, creating a sense of urgency as Satan moves from his misty cloak into the bushes of the earth until finally reaching the folds of the snake. So the the enjambments really support this this um, kind of fluid motion um, that's created by the iambic meter, um, and even emphasized with kind of the, the kind of breaks in between obscure and pry in every bush. Um, it's hard to tell where the line break is, but it's after pry. So the comma kind of still just, it's all kind of building this sense of fluidity that even though Milton is sticking to this really formal um, structure in his poem, it, it blends together in a really interesting way. Um, this verbal levity echoes the physical lightness, which he acquires in his vaporous form um, with the iambic feet creating this upward rising meter, um, which actually contradicts the direction of Satan's downward movement because um, as he's moving down, the, the, the direction of the, the, the meter is kind of up. So there's even there, there's this kind of interesting rhetorical trickery. Um, so really, though, this 
this ease and appeal of the language kind of seduces and transfixes you into the passage of Satan, even though the construction is kind of contradictory. Um, but let's continue as Satan goes into the snake. So this is, again, from book nine. O foul descent, that I who erst contended with gods to sit the highest am now constrained into a beast and mixed with bestial slime, this essence to incarnate and imbrute that to the height of deity aspired. But what will not ambition and revenge descend to? What aspires must down as low as high he soared, obnoxious first or last to basest things. So, Upon Satan's incarnation, Milton is here kind of returning to the ideas of metaphysical poetry. Um, and in this descent to the snake, Satan's voicing this frustration with being constrained into a beast and mixed with bestial slime. Um, to hearken back to the kind of soul into soul must flow of John Donne, Dunn, where Donne sees divine ecstasy in this melding of souls and um, transubstantial um, kind of merging. Satan expresses contempt for the fluid commingling of his essence, made explicit by the description of the serpent's slimy matter. Um, and then Satan pairs incarnate with imbrute, a word which suggests visceral degradation, to degrade, to make bestial, bestialize. Um, the metaphysical interaction between body and soul is thus corrupted and perverted for Satan's ma malevolent intentions. Um, so Satan kind of serves to illustrate the movement from ephemeral essence to carnal flesh, using both atmospheric and metaphysical themes, yet all the while, Satan still maintains a sense of malfeasance and perversion. Um, from his diffuse vapor to the slimy material of the serpent, Satan's mobile descent from essence to flesh is marked by grotesque obscurity and nefarious ends. So what I think this passage is really building towards is this perversion of metaphysical incarnation that ultimately serves to contrast another embodiment, which is the incarnation of the Son as Jesus Christ, um, which in book three of Paradise Lost, God embraces and encourages the Son's descent into the body, describing the Son, quote, made flesh when time shall be of virgin seed by wondrous birth. So that's from book three, and Milton exemplifies an antithetical tale of embodiment, one which contrasts with beatific light and divine majesty of the Son, and in Satan, Milton visions monist incarnation at its most perverse, born from misty vapors and bestial slime, the obscure flesh of slippery matter and dark intentions. So that's really the character of Satan um, in relation to the air in Paradise Lost. It's not really um, challenging Milton's monist philosophy. Rather, I think in that passage, Satan is so fluid, he is... Um, kind of embodying all the different substances that divine uh, beings can take on. It's He's very fluid. He's kind of expressing that transubstantial nature um, and differences in degrees. Um, he's kind of encompassing all of that. Um, but what he is doing um, in that passage, um, Milton is kind of creating a Satan that is pervasive, that is diffuse, that is, you know, embodied in the smoke and the mist. I mean, that midnight vapor is such a compelling image of what Satan is, he's kind of this smoke that um, gets in the way of 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 you 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 know seeing and being a part of this monist continuum that Milton has so beautifully created. Satan embodies the kind of things that get in between that that are kind of toxic or kind of invasive, like 
I kind of imagine his presence as this this cloud of smoke or fog or mist that is kind of hanging over a beautiful landscape and you can't really see it and you can't really feel that you're a part of it because he's kind of getting in the way and it's doing so in a way that isn't kind of a substantial thing you know what is mist what is fog it's not really anything but it's just there and it's kind of everywhere and I think that's a really interesting way to think about Satan and think about the way that Satan interacts with the characters of Adam and Eve. So that kind of brings me to the end of of thinking about Satan in relation to the air and brings us to, as Satan is brought to, thinking about humans. You know, where do we, the descendants of Adam and Eve, find ourselves in between these dueling embodiments of smoke and air? Um, And if you're just joining us, you're listening to WKCR. My name is Josh, and we're talking about um, Paradise Lost and the airwaves of, of John Milton's Um, kind of cosmology that he's constructed in Paradise Lost. Um, We've talked about um, God and divine air, and we've talked about kind of the smoky air which Satan embodies in Paradise Lost. Um, And now we're going to be talking about Adam and Eve and the way that they find themselves in between all of this. And I would argue that that's exactly where they lie, which is between these kind of big structures and big kind of spiritual matters um, they're kind of immersed in all of it so humans are imbued with the breath of god the holistic vital and all-containing air of milton's monism Um, this is from book seven this is raphael talking to adam this said he formed thee adam thee o man dust of the ground and in thy nostrils breathed the breath of life so in this originary creative breath we're right there connected with this whole universe that Milton's creating, um, which becomes really clear um, at the end of the poem um, when Adam and Eve kind of pray for forgiveness um, from God. Um, So this is from book 11, quote, But prayer against his absolute decree no more avails than breath against the wind blown stifling back on him that breathes it forth. Therefore, to his great beating, I submit. This vision of submission you know, creates this absolutism to to God, but it also suggests that, you know, we are part of of him. We are part of his breath. We're, you know, air just as he is. And, um, you know, there's a kind of pointlessness in that act in trying to fight against the wind. It's like we're all swept up in this fluid um, state of being the one first matter, right? Um, So there's this sense of connectedness that we're creating in, the way that Milton imagines um, Adam and Eve. But at the same time, we're also caught in the smoke and haze of Satan's serpentine tricks. Um, And I said we'd discuss the post-lapsarian intercourse of mutual guilt between the newly mortal and Adam and Eve. This is right after Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge. You know, that's the classic paradise lost scene that I'm sure all of you listening know. Um, And one of the first things they do is they realize... Um, this lust and they have you know sexual intercourse together um, in this kind of guilty embrace um, which is kind of tinged with all of this kind of um, aspect of the fall so in this passage um, right after that um, you'll notice how much we've fallen from that airy angelic embrace that we talked about earlier 
and the inception of, you know, it's the first bad sleep of Adam and Eve's life. Quote, um, soon as the force of that fallacious fruit that with exhilarating vapor bland about their spirits had played and inmost powers made air was now exhaled and grosser sleep bred of unkindly fumes with conscious dreams. So part of Milton's imagining of the fall of man is reckoning with the shroud of fallen knowledge. Here we see Adam and Eve seduced by the exhilarating vapor, which before they had none of this hazy atmospheric dis- description um, and kind of deception. Um, they didn't have to deal with that kind of vaporous, obscuring quality. So unlike the angelic transubstantial embrace, post-lapsarian humans have to make do with that bread of unkindly fumes and the unsavory impulses of life. Um, Milton demonstrates that as much as it comes from oneself, these impulses are in the air, they're atmospheric, they're breathed in and they're exhaled. Um, and we're kind of products of that. Um, and part of what the fall does is it um, allows us to be susceptible to the, the tricks and the, the, the flaws and the lies that are out in the world. Um, you know, we are susceptible to that we can breathe them in um, and they might, you know, lead to problems they might lead to 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 bad sleep to conscious dreams um but that is just kind of a part of our fallen state we're no longer in that closed off kind of edenic world we're more vulnerable so this is kind of the atmospheric tension present in how milton envisions our post-lapsarian state um you know humans after the fall which is all of us is have to pierce through the fog and mist for some clearer air to try and reclaim the vital breath which composes us. And no one understands this better than um, Milton himself, speaking through the voice of the poet in the beginning of the poem. Milton asks, What in me is dark illumine? There's some clouding darkness to what Milton is describing in the very, um, you know, state of his poetic voice. Um, He is also in a post-lapsarian state, um, a state after the fall, and he also has to search for fresh air. It evokes definitely some of Milton's, you know, blindness, um, that idea of darkness and searching for the light, but I think it also um, does something with with the air. He, he's definitely interacting with the kind of clarity with which he goes on to define that Empyrean air. Um, and I have a couple other quotes to read from that. Um, also from, this is from book three, This is, again, Milton's poetic narrator. But cloud instead and ever-during dark surrounds me from the cheerful ways of men. Or later, just a few lines later, irradiate their plant eyes all mist from thence, purge and disperse that I may see and tell. Milton says, um, purge and disperse. That's this kind of really amazing phrasing that I think is so compelling especially especially when we've been talking about all of these different formulations of the air and trying to to connect with some sense of unity to some sense of kind of continuity with everything else that's out there um purge and disperse is our task as it was milton's um and i mean he certainly did a pretty good job of dispersing through um, all of the mist and fog and smoke to produce something with so much clarity and so much um, amazing force. So I think here we can really think about 
what Milton considered the human experience, you know, um, because this kind of purge and disperse task is what we all have to deal with. It is what Adam and Eve have to deal with um, being fallen. You know, they have to find their way through the darkness at the end of the poem. But, you know, we're all dealing with the ramifications of, of fallen life in Milton's imagination of the universe. So I think he's getting to something really, really fascinating and really profound in searching to to have those clouds part from him and to to find that connection with the air that com- com- combines everyone and i think it's a really amazing and profound model for the human condition for our connection with our surroundings for just being in the world i think it's so compelling to look at it through air um and maybe that's just because i'm a radio dj but i think there really is something profound about connecting through the air about um you know tracing that fluidity and finding that clarity um in something that seems so clear i guess after making my way through paradise lost and trying to you know find all these different manifestations of air and you know working through all of this you know strange and dense material i found this purge and disperse to be so um empowering and so amazing um, that even Milton, you know, this, this mighty poet was, you know, still working through that same task. It's a really monumental one, but it's one that we all share. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. So I hope you find that thought as encouraging as I do. And I hope that you are all well on your way to purging and dispersing the clouds and finding some sense of wholeness. It is the holiday season and I'm, I'm hopeful that we're all finding that kind of sense of unity before the year is up. It's something that we're continually working towards. You know, Milton was nearly 60 when Paradise Lost was first published, um, and he was still trying to, to, to pierce through the clouds. So I hope that you find that thought encouraging. I think I do. You've been listening to The Airwaves of Paradise Lost, a WKCR arts feature. My name is Josh Kazali. I've been your host. Um, and thank you so much for listening. We've been through air in all shapes and sizes. Of We've been through um, the divine air of God. We've been through angelic air. We've been through devilish satanic air. Um, and all along, we've been tracking kind of the cosmology of John Milton's poetic structure um it's been so much fun to talk about this with you all if you've enjoyed listening to it i've certainly enjoyed talking about it um and yeah i totally encourage all of you listening to go through a poem that intimidates you because you might find something that's really exciting and really interesting um like i have and so with that i leave you um thank you again to professor crawford for helping me throughout the semester and thanks to you for listening and with one more deep breath thanks so much